I would like to invite you this morning to turn to two scripture texts with me today. The first is the epistle text from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews the first chapter. But the focus of the message today as we have been going through uh, the literature from the Old Testament, focus of the message today will come from Job, the first chapter, in just a moment. But I want you to hear a few of the verses from the epistle text for today. This is Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke through the prophets to our ancestors in many times and many ways. In these final days, though, he spoke to us through a son. God made his son the heir of everything and created the world through him. The son is the light of God's glory and the imprint of God's being. He maintains everything with his powerful message. After he carried out the cleansing of people from their sins, he sat down at the right side of the highest majesty. And so the son became so much greater than the other messengers, such as angels, that he received a more important title than theirs. And now the second chapter, just verses 9 and 10. However, we do see the one who was made lower in order than the angels for a little while. It's Jesus. He's the one who is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. He suffered death so that he could taste death for everyone through God's grace. It was appropriate for God, for whom and through whom everything exists. I love this line. To to use experiences of suffering to make perfect the pioneer of salvation. This salvation belongs to many sons and daughters whom he's leading to glory. And now I'd invite you to turn to the Old Testament text, to Job 1.1, and then the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And if you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. A man in the land of Uts was named Job. That man was honest, a person of absolute integrity. He feared God and avoided evil. And now chapter 2. One day the divine beings came to present themselves before the Lord. The adversary also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to the adversary, where have you come from? The adversary answered the Lord from wandering around the earth. The Lord said to the adversary, have you thought about my servant Job? For there is none like him on earth, a man who is honest, who is of absolute integrity, who reveres God and avoids evil. He still holds on to his integrity, even though you incited me to ruin him for no reason. The adversary responded to the Lord, skin for skin, people will give up everything they have in exchange for their lives. But stretch out your hand and strike his bones and flesh, then he will definitely curse you to your face. The Lord answered the adversary, there he is within your power, only preserve his life. The adversary departed from the Lord's presence and struck Job with severe sores from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery to scratch himself and sat down on a mound of ashes. Job's wife came to him. Are you still clinging to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job said to her, you're talking like a foolish woman. Will we receive good from God, but not also receive bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. So 
so I don't know if I want to start with an illustration or a kind of confession of sin this morning, but I am a fan of the Big Bang Theory. Um, we started kind of watching the show, especially in its early seasons, back when it came out in 2007. And part of the reason I think Deb and I liked the show so much is because it's set in Pasadena, California, and it came out in the second year that we had moved back to that area. I also kind of love the show because if you know the show, the guys, the main characters are all scientists and mathematicians and physicists at Caltech. Um, we had several young PhD students from Caltech who were attending Paznaz in those years. And uh, we would love to laugh about the show together and how it was kind of a mirror of their own lives. But we also love it because Deb worked on a show uh, over a decade earlier. In 1995, Deb worked on a show for an executive producer who had created a show called Dweebs that was very similar, only it didn't last nearly as long as Big Bang Theory. But we would watch Big Bang and remark that her boss's show was just too early and how timing and casting just kind of make all the difference. But, but if you are an early adopter to the Big Bang Theory, you will notice a dramatic shift take place in the first season. In the early episodes of the Big Bang, it is fairly clear that the show was originally meant to center around the relationship between Leonard and their sweet neighbor, Penny. And in fact, those two actors, the actor that plays Leonard, uh, Johnny Galecki, and the actor that plays Penny, Kaylee Cuoco, were the only two coming into the series that any, had any real history in television and had any marketability to them. But Sheldon, played by Jim Parsons, originally was meant to be just a source of sporadic comedy relief. If you're a fan of another famous sitcom, he was supposed to be like Kramer originally on Seinfeld. It was just kind of the crazy friend who would show up every once in a while and be comedy relief. But eventually, like in Seinfeld, Kramer became more important. But in Big Bang, it was clear that it didn't take very many episodes for the writers to recognize that the audience was increasingly drawn to Sheldon as the primary character. For Sheldon embodied in his character the extreme mathematical and scientific physicist mind. He's all IQ and no EQ at all. And, for, and in fact, perhaps the most famous Big Bang episode and makes the list of most critics' favorite episode is an early Christmas episode. Penny has now become friends with the guys and they have a Christmas party together and they decide they're going to exchange gifts with one another. Sheldon, all IQ and no EQ, has no idea how to conceive of the math of friendship and of gift giving. And he knows that Penny's going to give him a gift, so he doesn't know what to give her in return. And so he goes to Bath and Body Works and he buys several different sizes of gift baskets. And he hides them in his bedroom to wait to see what kind of gift Penny gives him. And based on what kind of quality and expense that gift will be, he'll run into the bedroom and pick the gift basket that seems to equate to the value of that gift. But if you know the episode, she ends up giving him, she works at the Cheesecake Factory, and she ends up giving him a napkin from the Cheesecake Factory signed by Sheldon's hero, hero Leonard Nimoy of Star Trek fame. But not only does he give it to her, give it to him signed, but she says to him, I apologize, he used it to wipe his mouth, to which he almost passes out and says, 
I have Leonard Nimoy's DNA. All I need is a healthy ovum and I can create my own Leonard Nimoy. Um, and he is so overwhelmed with the meaningfulness of this gift to him that he runs into the room, grabs all the baskets and runs them out and drops them at her feet. But realizes this is still not enough, not worthy of this gift that she has given to him. And so he does what is so uncharacteristic for him. He gives to her an awkward but genuine hug. The, the A plot of the show became the growth of Sheldon from a rigid black and white, controlled and everything in life had to be controlled, which led to coldness and isolation. About his transition from the world of physics and math to the messy, confusing, heartbreaking, but often beautiful world of friendship and love. In fact, in the very last episode of the series, Sheldon finally wins the Nobel Prize for Physics. And he's brought with him a whole book to read as his speech about how great he is and how long he has deserved this award. But in the end, he sets it aside and realizes that the true gift he's been given is not the prize, but his friends along the journey. Perhaps the maturing of our lives from the structure of rules to the messiness of love and life is what the book of Job is all, ultimately all about. We're going to be in Job for the next uh, few weeks as the lectionary takes us to various passages in this amazing, great, complicated, beautiful, poetic book. But Job is a book that both invites and requires maturity out of us to approach. We got to, in this journey through the wisdom literature, through the literature, we got to spend a, just a handful of weeks in Proverbs. And as we discovered there, if Proverbs is wisdom to young people in the early part of life, the young and immature, then Job is the messy reflections for the old. It's the messy reflection for those who've been around the block a few times. First of all, Job requires maturity to handle the kind of literature that it is. Um, it's a complicated book. In fact, uh, our own uh, Dr. Wendell Bowes has spent uh, several years working through the book of Job and wrote just recently for the uh, Beacon Commentary series, wrote an amazing commentary on Job and a little book on preaching and teaching out of it. But it's complicated literature. And so I, I need to invite you into that just a little bit, which invites you into a kind of maturity as we approach it. For Job is in the literature. And so one of the things we have to recognize is we have one book that we call the Bible, but the Bible has 66 different books in it. And in those 66 books is all different kinds of literature. At some level, that's pretty basic, but at the same time, it's pretty hard for us to fully conceive. For example, it's easy when we get to the New Testament to recognize we have gospels and we have letters or epistles, and then we have apocalypse like Revelation. And it's important to recognize gospels are different than letters and letters are really different than apocalypse. And as we read them, we have to pay attention to what kind of literature they are, in particular the letters. Who are these addressed to? What are the problems that emerge out of the church to which Paul or Peter or one of the other apostles is addressing the issue? But in the Old Testament, we get 
poetry and songs. We get, we get Torah, law. We get prophetic books. We get wisdom. And it raises this question, what kind of literature is Job? I'm going to argue with you this morning, and, and by the way, the bulk of Old Testament scholarship's with me on this one, and so I, I'm, I'm pretty secure in this. But that the book of Job is not, does not belong to the historical books. It belongs to the literary books. It may indeed be the fact that there was a Job that somebody knew about and maybe even had a reputation for faithfulness in the midst of challenge. But the book of Job that we have in front of us is clearly literature. Um, it almost reads like that, right? There once was a man named Job from a city called Oots. By the way, I learned from Dr. Bose. That's how you pronounce it. It's pronounced like boots. Oots. Thank you, Dr. Bose. Um, but if you had a script writing program, you could almost drop Job into that script writing program and it would fit. For it reads like a kind of dialogue where certain characters come onto the stage and they say things to Job about his suffering and Job responds. It is very much a kind of wisdom literature, almost equivalent to something like a Shakespearean play or a, a platonic dialogue. And the reason why that is important is not just because if we misunderstand what kind of literature it is, we won't get all of its fullness. That's important. But it's also important that as we understand its plot that we be careful with it. We're introduced in the very first chapter, if you have your Bible still open, we're introduced in the very first chapter to Job, who has kind of everything together. In fact, it's interesting how everything comes in kind of what equals tens. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep and 300 camels. He had, he had just a ton of money and a ton of wealth and a ton of security but we're introduced to this heavenly advisory committee in which this character, a character that the Common English Bible translates as the adversary, but in Hebrew, the word is this, ha-satan. Some of your translations, because the word is ha-satan, will translate it as Satan. But it's really important, first of all, that we understand this as literature and not history, but also that we understand this character, this adversary that is in the heavenly courts as a very different character than a character that shows up more frequently and clearly in the New Testament who oftentimes gets that similar name, Satan. And so without getting overly complicated this morning, it is really important that we not read this as history, but we also understand this character is a kind of advocate actually in the courtroom of God whose job it is to make sure that everybody's doing what they ought to do is an accuser. Now let me say the reason for that is there are some Christian and religious traditions that using this literature not as literature but in a different kind of way get very strange theology out of it. Both about what in the world does God constantly make deals over our life in heaven? Or even theology that begins to, to put Satan and Jesus' brothers, like you can get into some strange places out of this text. Now my own guess, and this is my guess, you can take it or leave it. But my own guess is that this book emerges late in Israel's history out of the Babylonian exile 
in which in the midst of exile, and an exile that just keeps going and going and going, that there are some in exile who are saying, we're here because we sinned, and God is now punishing us for our disobedience. And so, get your act together, wake up. Start living holy, and God will move and act. And there are some who are beginning to say, well, this could be a long time, but God's going to redeem us. Or some who are saying, this God exists, but this God is clearly not as powerful as the Babylonian gods we now live among. Or there were some who were even saying, this God that we worshiped is actually no God at all. <laughs> Curse God and die. But whoever wrote Job, I think seems to be this person who is realizing two things. This exile is going on a long time, God. And I know that some of our leaders are pretty sinful. And I'm frustrated with how the priests have operated and how the kings operated. But me and my family were pretty faithful. We did a lot of the right things, God. Not everybody who ended up being drawn into exile with the Judeans were guilty of the sins of the leaders. So what's the deal, God? Why are you taking so long? And what about some of us who are now getting some of the brokenness that was created and inflicted on by others. And so it requires honesty and maturity to handle, and here we go, the two key questions that I think Job wants to wrestle with and will wrestle with for the next few weeks. Are you ready? Here are the two key questions. The first is this. It shows up in chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord said to the adversary, Have you thought about my servant Job? Surely there is no one like him on earth. The first question is this. Have you considered my servant Job? Job is described as honest and having integrity and fearing God. And because of that, God has blessed him with all of these things. But in the section of scripture we didn't get to read this morning, at the rest of chapter 1, the accuser shows up and says, I wonder, God, is Job... All of these things, faithful and having integrity, because you have given him such great gifts. And so God allows the accuser to take it all away. In fact, it's just a horrible part of the story. Four messengers show up, boom, 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 boom. And the first one comes and says, all of your fields have been devastated. And the next one comes and says, all of your camels have been taken away. And the next one comes and says, all of your flocks have been raided, many of them killed, and all of your servants have been eliminated. And then the last one comes and says, a huge wind came and blew down the house and your 10 kids were having a party and they are all dead. Job's response in verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I will return there. The Lord is given, the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is impressed 
and says essentially to the accuser, told you. I know that guy. That guy is faithful through thick and thin. But the accuser wonders, is Job faithful even though he's lost all of his things, you still haven't messed with him, God. And there's a great Hebrew line that's translated exactly in the common English Bible, skin for skin. We're not sure all that that idiom means, but it probably means something like this. You will certainly abandon all the skin you have in the game in order to save your own skin. That in the end, it's one thing to lose everybody and everything. It's another thing for you to lose your own life. And so God allows the accuser to cover him with sores and boils. To which, as we saw in verse 10, Job's response, sitting in ashes, picking boils with broken pieces of pottery, responds to his frustrated and rightfully angry wife. Will we receive good from God? but not also receive bad. The question, have you considered my servant Job, I think is an invitation for us to ask this question. Have you considered us today? It invites us to examine our own heart and faith. And let me say, and this is important, the reciprocity and goodness of God is not unimportant. Pastor Diane just led us in prayer, asking God to do things, and we believe God is good. And God wants to and often will respond to the things that we desire most. That if we skip ahead to the New Testament when Jesus, the incarnation, shows up on the scene, he heals bodies. Touches blind people, lets the lame dance, lets the mute sing. We are right in saying that God cares about us, knows our need. And we're right in saying, as the wisdom tradition does, if you will do good things, good things will mostly come to you. But the whole book of Job raises this question. But does that goodness, does the reciprocity of God become the basis of our faith? What matters ultimately more to us, God's gifts or our own character? If if I'm right about where this book emerges from, I can feel the author asking these questions. If this exile keeps going, will there be anybody left? Who will emerge faithful from this pain of exile. As each decade goes by, who will stay connected to trust in God and who will be lost? What keeps us connected to God when the gifts of God have dried up? I have to say, I I learned much about this when I was just a little boy I think I've told you the story when I was five years old, I was in kindergarten and all my class had to learn to skip and I was the last one who didn't know how. It shocks you that I wouldn't just do something athletic like that naturally. I hadn't really grown into this body yet. Um, 
My dear friend, Glafer Gillen, was out at our home with us and she prayed with me and invited me to pray. And I remember even as a five-year-old thinking, God doesn't care about five-year-olds skipping. And she said, yeah, he does. And I remember praying about that and the very next day, the, the ruach of God fell upon me. <laughs> and I skipped in the joy of the Lord. God cares and hears and responds. But it wasn't very many years later as a 10-year-old that my grandfather, my mom's dad, passed away. Just a little bit even younger now than I am. Suddenly, I remember even as a 10-year-old beginning to wrestle with, how does somebody so good and who is such a loving minister who is devoted to God in ways that even today as an adult, I, I think are far superior than my own commitment to do what God wants. Why, God? And now, as an adult, moments where I have seen God's hand so clear, And moments, one in particular, standing beside the bed of a teenager who thousands of faithful people around the world had prayed for for months and months and months. And with Deb and I singing and holding her hand when the life support was removed, breathed her last breath. I remember walking out of that hospital room Wondering, where are you, God? Where are you? Job invites us to wonder about our own faithfulness in the midst of circumstances that we do not understand. But more importantly, the second and I think the more significant question of Job is, have you considered God? Have you considered God? For where Job takes us is to wonder if perhaps our relationship with God is more than just a zero-sum game, more than just asking and receiving, more than just obeying and being blessed. There's a day each year, um, each semester in my theology class that I look forward to. It comes fairly early in the, the semester. It's about the time we get to the Noah story. And we're in the middle of talking about creation and the character of God. And then we get to the Noah story and I write four words on the board. Those four words are this, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnibenevolence. Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, omnibenevolence. If those are strange words to you, they mean this. Omnipotence, God is all-powerful. Omniscience, God knows everything. Omnipresence, God is everywhere. Omnibenevolence, God is all-loving. It's interesting when we get to the Noah story, though. The, the way the Hebrew people think about their relationship with God 
It's as though God gets to this place where humankind is broken and evil, and the text is very violent. And God looks and says, I had no idea it was going to get this bad. I should probably have a do-over. Shake the gotcha sketch. Open the windows of the dome of the sky. Take the tohu bohu that was there at the beginning and let it come back down. What's even odder is at the end of the story, it's as though God goes, huh, that wasn't the best way to make everything new. I'm not sure I'm going to do that again. In fact, I promise, I'm not going to do that again. Here's my bow. I'm hanging it up. We are not going to be at war anymore, humankind. That story and other stories like it, and certainly the book of Job, causes us to begin to maybe rethink some of this. If I could start at the bottom, certainly it doesn't cause us to rethink God's omnibenevolence. Certainly God is all loving and we can affirm that. And so we can certainly say as difficult and challenging things happen to us in our lives, it's not as though God says, I don't really care. We know that God cares. And then we can certainly affirm and embrace omnipresence. It's not as though God comes to us and says, oh, sorry, I was on the other side of the planet. Really serious things going on there. I don't know if you've seen it. But was busy and missed this, my bad. But certainly God is present. But if I could go to the top one, omnipotence. I always say to students, I, I believe that God can do whatever God wants to do, but I, I'm absolutely convinced there is one thing that God has chosen that he will not do ever. And at the top of that list is this, God will never force you to serve and love him. God, in God's love, decided to create beings who can do the strangest things, who can live according to his purposes, but can also shake their fist at God and go not only a bad direction, but an evil direction. And the brokenhearted, all-loving God weeps at the directions that we can go and the evil that we can bring to bear on our lives and on the lives of others. And maybe, and this is just a maybe, maybe that even changes some of the ways we think about omniscience. For in the Noah story, it's certainly not that God has kind of planned this and said, you know, I just decided I'm going to start here, but then it will be fun to have a do-over later. Much more drama if I get to flood somebody. But there seems to be a genuineness of how the Hebrews understand God's related to us, relatedness to us. In fact, I would argue this morning, as Diane prayed for us, we did not pray this, oh God, you already know what you're going to do. So help us just be okay with what you're going to do. The invitation is actually a God who somehow in the mystery of who God is has entered into this relationship with us in ways that our prayers somehow seem to matter to the heart of God but not in a vending machine kind of way. If we just say enough, he'll say, okay. Now, I don't know how to make all of that work. 
But I know that Job invites us into the deep end of the pool to wonder, who is this God? Who walks with us and talks with us and in the mystery of who God is, seems to even suffer with us. By the way, it's fascinating that class day. I generally think that day one of four things happens in a student's life. Either they don't really care, which usually they came in not caring and I, that they didn't convince them to care. Or they look at me, like some of you are looking at me now, a little confused. We'll work it out later in the semester. Or they're just simply not ready to swim in the deep end yet. And somehow throw those water wings off and just want to hang on to a God who follows basic rules. If I do this, then I get this in return. But there are some who get a light in their eyes who begin to recognize, oh, that is hard Oh, but that is good. I don't want to ruin the end of Job, but how much better is it to have a God that journeys with us and knows us and we get to know God than it is just to simply have a script writer and we are acting out our parts. As I think about these two questions, have you considered my servant Job and have you considered God? My imagination is drawn two directions. The first, have you considered Job? It's always taken to Abraham. Abraham, who like Job, has to wrestle with the mystery of God and that God has given him Isaac, the fulfillment of the promise. He knows, he knows that Isaac is the way in which this promise that God has covenanted and made with him. Isaac is the way this is going to be fulfilled. But he absolutely knows that God has asked for Isaac back on the altar in Moriah, at Moriah. And as Soren Kierkegaard so beautifully says, Abraham is just filled with divine madness. Convinced that he can now trust God enough to not fully comprehend and understand why and how the one who is the promise can also be given back. But trust. But as I, as I think about this question, who is God? My mind goes to the Hebrew text for today that we read earlier. For when the writer looks for God, this is what she or he says. This is verses 9 and 10 again. We do see the one who is made lower in order than the angels for a little while. It's Jesus. He's the one who is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. He suffered death so that he could taste death for everyone through God's grace. And I love this line. It was appropriate for God. Notice this. It was appropriate for God, for whom and through whom everything exists, to use experiences of suffering to make perfect the pioneer of salvation. It was appropriate for God, the Hebrew writer says, 
for whom and through whom everything exists. This is not a question of God's power. But it is the very nature of God's love to use experiences of suffering, to enter experiences of suffering, to complete salvation. This morning, we close around a table. A table in which we, we do two things. Well, many things, but this morning too. <laughs> we come to recognize our own brokenness. Things are not the way they're supposed to be, sometimes because we have made them so. But now, in our maturity, we also come and recognize sometimes things are not the way they're supposed to be, even when we did the right things. And we come carrying that brokenness to God as well. But we come to meet the mystery of God who does not meet us at a table and says, I told you so. Don't bring that brokenness to me. That's yours. But God in whom the mystery of Job and the mystery of the incarnation is this God meets us, transforms us, how appropriately so, in our places of suffering. If I could just tell one last quick story before we take the meal together. I can tell this because it happened at a different church. <laughs> when I was pastor at a different church, we, we would have Ash Wednesday services like we do here, and, and we would put the cross in the middle and I would invite people at the end of the service to come and receive the elements. And then I would say, take, take the Lord's Supper wherever you want to today. You can take it at an altar or come around the cross or up here on the platform, wherever you want to. Our, our kids were little. And each year, Deb would take the four of them kind of stair steps and bring them up the stair steps and gather around the cross. And one year, a, a gentleman came to me after the service. And he was really angry with me. He'd been angry with me for a while. He was angry at how we did communion. First, he was angry. He always felt like I made the, t the table too open for everybody. By the way, I've had that problem here. And I'm just, <laughs> here I stand, I shall do no other. Um, if we have to wait till we're worthy to come to this table, nobody's coming to this table. But he was angry at me because Debbie was having... <laughs> communion with the kids, and she was trying to explain it, and I'm sure it was probably Noah who took the cup and drank it and then licked the cup, you know, or <laughs> took it like kids and not, not very holy. And he said, I don't think, I don't think they got it. He just kept saying to me, I don't think they got it. I don't think they got it. And you know how you're in those moments where your heart's beating fast, and then about two days later, you think, oh, I know what I should have said. I can remember three times in my life where the right thing came to me at the right moment. This is in those three. He was saying to me, I don't think they got it. I don't think they got it. I don't think they got it. And I finally said, do you get it? He said, what? 
I said, do you get it? I don't get it. I got a PhD in this stuff. I don't get it. The reason they can come is not because they get it, but because it may actually get them. And so we are people who come to this mysterious broken table today, not fully getting it, knowing that even, I don't want to ruin it for you, but even when we get to the book of Job, the answers aren't great. But we know God deeper. So we come with a longing for God to help us be faithful in all circumstances, but we also come knowing he is with us today today.